Hello, I'm Rebecca Burnt, and welcome to the Unfolding Podcast, where we're seeking truth and wisdom as things fall apart and having conversations about spirituality and culture beyond polarized ideologies. My guest today is Mike Morrell. He's a writer and best-selling co-author of The Divine Dance, The Trinity, and Your Transformation with Father Richard Rohr. He was a founding organizer of the Wild Goose Festival, a justice, faith, and spirituality event modeled on Greenbelt in the UK, and he facilitates contemplative community experiences using the circling method and lives in Asheville, North Carolina with his family. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Rebecca. So good to be here with you today. Yeah. So you and I are good friends. And I think we first met probably, I'm sure when I was living in Atlanta, which was like about 2008 to 2011. And we've both been in some of these both emerging church conversations over the years where um, I talked a little bit about that last week, but basically a lot of people kind of uh, coming out of evangelical Christianity, deconstructing a lot of their beliefs and and trying to figure out what's next. So we've both been around a lot of these conversations um, around culture, spirituality, um, how do we create spiritual community how is Christian Christianity still relevant? How is Jesus still relevant? Um, we've been in a lot of these things over the last couple of years. And so you've always been a great conversation partner. <laughs> well, likewise. And yes, yeah, we did meet when you were in Atlanta. In fact, I believe if memory serves, it was the very first weekend you arrived. I happened to be in town visiting from Raleigh because I was considering moving back to Atlanta at the time. And it was you and your brother. Uh, oh. at a, yeah, at a, at a conversation, for, I believe, for the formation of the uh, the startup emerging church called The Living Room. Okay, yeah, we were, we were at, I don't know if we were at the very first conversation they had for that, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, we were kind of in, in, in that, um, and part of that. Yeah, I don't even remember this, but I'm mm-hmm. glad you remember. <laughs> I do, I do. And then, yeah, because I didn't live in Atlanta at the time, but you did. And I came back several times a year to visit family. Yeah. That's where I'm from. And then we would see each other at various conferences and events, as well as, of course, the internet. And uh, you're right. We've both been through many different evolutions in, uh, you know, faith and and deconstruction and going hard for justice and social renewal. And, you know, a thing that I find interesting about both of our journeys, at least I'll I'll speak for myself and you can tell Mm -hmm. me if this, you know, resonates for yours. I feel like you know, a lot of friends that I grew up with in, in fundamentalism and evangelicalism, they, they kind of fit into one or two categories when they grew up, when they started confronting reality. Um, a minority of them doubled down and they are, you know, exactly how our parents raised us. They're, they're the sort of carbon copies of really wanting to, quote, keep the faith in the way it was handed to them. And they are also homeschooling and having large families and, you know, mm-hmm. doing all of this. But the vast majority of my friends who grew up the same way I did, which is, you know, in the Bible Belt of the Southern United States and Mm -hmm. in the homeschooled world that I grew up in, most of them are, um, you know, completely nihilistic. Uh, Many of them are atheistic. And, you know, while folks who were in the early stages of the emerging church conversation might have taken a little longer to get there, a lot of them also ended up in those places, didn't feel like they had a sort of re-enchantment of their faith or their lives. And for me, I never felt like I, 
I mean, I was practically a cradle Christian. I did have a born again experience at age four when I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart. But, you know, it was sort of osmosis. I was sort of raised with it. And I feel like rather than my faith or spirituality um, taking these like really drastic revolutions, for me, I feel like it's been more of an evolution. It's been a slow and gradual way of of making my spirituality my own, of exercising ownership and co-creation and composting of it. And so it doesn't seem like it's had the sharp jarring back and forth that a lot of my friends who I think really experienced um, their faith or lack thereof as a crisis ended up feeling. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I have noticed those two tendencies as well. And there was a moment when I was still in that scene in Atlanta, um, where which was one, I think, one of the hubs for a lot of these emerging mm-hmm. deconstruction uh, conversations. And I remember seeing people moving towards that more nihilistic space Um, or even just even with some of some of the people that kind of just transitioned into main like being mainline Protestant clergy and and things like that a more intellectualized space where it was it was all about it felt very in the head to me and sometimes removed from like the the visceral reality of daily experience Mm -hmm. and for me maintaining a connection to that that mysticism and that um that sense of enchantment that you named uh felt really important that just felt like the one element of my experience growing up at that time, the one element that was really valuable and gave me something. And I, I had a little bit of a, I would say, because I saw the ways that it could be manipulated or um, taken, like sort of blown out of proportion or where people could use that mysticism to become really ungrounded. I sometimes also had that aversion to it, but at the same time, I knew that there was this there was something it gave to me. And so I think you and I both went into the contemplative. We found the contemplative streams of Christianity and um, really became, I think fell in love with that contemplative heart of Christianity and the ways in which it uh, relates to and intersects with the contemplative heart and a lot of other faith traditions as well. Yeah, absolutely you know, when we're we're speaking of this core of enchantment that you and I both decided that we wanted to carry forward with us, it actually makes me think back to the sort of old school emergent village uh, value of of what now is really popularly used in a more therapeutic context, which is this whole idea of of deconstruction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, deconstruction, uh, as it was largely lifted from Jacques Derrida, and specifically through this philosopher in in Christian circles named John Caputo, he talks about how deconstruction is something that we do with with a a value set that we love, that we deconstruct what we love. And he even hints that there might be undeconstructables, these sort of things that Mm -hmm. are themselves the measure by which everything else is held to the light, turned over, examined. And, and for Caputo, as well as I think for Derrida, that main undeconstructible is love. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but the sort of 
transcendent experiences that I had growing up, especially in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, like you, I, I quickly saw how they could be manipulated or they could simply be immature expressions, mm -hmm. a sort of momentary catharsis that doesn't really leave people changed, that doesn't really leave people more in touch with their bodies or their emotions. But at the same time, you know, I saw certain things and experienced certain things that feel undeniably real to me. And so that, that contemplative turn that you speak of was, was my way of saying, yes, there is this sort of love and energy at the core of, of spiritual experience that I find to be undeconstructible, or at least it has, you know, weathered the fires of, of my own examination and my own um, deconstruction. And it's, and it's something to build on. It's something to build on again in a more proactive way that I've found to be deeply healing. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you talking about the um, that what uh, both deconstruction deconstruction and the thing that remains that's undeconstructible. What it brings to mind is something that I think we both have an interest in, which is alchemy, right? Mm -hmm. And this idea of um, the alchemical process is a process of transformation, and part of it is that things have to kind of fall apart and be broken down. And that is part of the refining process and that there's something that's left over that is the pure essence, the pure element that you're getting to. Mm -hmm. And then things get reformed and reconstructed, mm -hmm. you know, in the end, the end result is something that has been reformed and reconstructed around this pure essential element. That's something that I didn't, I, I what I saw with a lot of people that went through the same process of leaving their Christianity, whether it was fundamentalism, evangelicalism, whatever you want to call it, or even, you know, Catholicism or something else, was that they did all this deconstruction and then they were like, okay, now what? There was nothing, there was no sort of reconstruction and reformation and right. getting back to like, okay, what am I going to build now? And that was, that was something that was really important to me because yeah. I, I knew that I couldn't, I, I knew that I, I needed it. There's something in me that just knew that I needed it. And that mystical, um, and when I say the mystical uh, tradition within Christianity, really, I got involved in centering prayer, which was as a, a basically a, a form of Christian meditation founded by Thomas Keating. And while he uses some Zen methodology, he had experience in Zen meditation. Uh, the it's really formed around the cloud of unknowing, which is a medieval, uh, medieval mystical Christian text. Uh, and if you look at like the influences on the cloud of unknowing, it really goes all the way back to the desert fathers the very in the very earliest centuries of Christianity. Yeah. Um, Cynthia Bougeau, who also teaches a lot about uh, both centering prayer and the mystical tradition that goes way back to the beginning. She teaches about Jesus as a uh, understanding him and contextualizing him as a wisdom teacher in the Eastern tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so those were definitely some of some of the influences for me. And I found that that gave me something. I mean, that was what really, I feel like saved me in a lot of ways because I knew that I was going to fall into despair and disillusionment and probably um, lose a lot of my own natural resilience if I didn't have something 
some sort of faith or some sort of sense of meaning and purpose in the world to hold on to. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, what, what tends to happen for those of us who, you know, came of age in this emerging church conversation, which God is going back almost 20 years now to it, to its inception, but I feel like is now happening with a lot of the, what's called the ex-evangelical movement and others right. who have experienced this wave afresh, you know, in the advent of the last few years, the geopolitical situation, you know, the election of Trump, et cetera, is that there's an awakening of social conscience uh, that happens that says, huh, you know, the ways in which maybe I've previously voted or spent my money or what have you, you know, just isn't doing it for me. And, and how did the Christianity or whatever religion I was raised in reinforce these kind of values? But you're right. Once we started, you know, deconstructing a lot of things, then for a lot of folks, they just kind of looked around them and there was all this, this wreckage. And their conclusion was that there was no ultimate meaning to life, that there, there wasn't a way of connecting to a sort of a plumb line of, of energy and motivation and, and communality with, with others. And I think that that has tended to lead people into one of two directions from there. It, it's either um, you know, they maintain their, their more awakened social values as best they can, but they, they just sort of, you know, are, are burning themselves out in activism. Mm -hmm. um, or they give up on the whole thing and they actually end up becoming just simply materialists trying to get by as best they can in a, mm -hmm. in a only material world. And, you know, alchemy is, is such a, a wonderful lens to look at this through, as is compost. You know, mm -hmm. recently I've, I've been, uh, I'm fresh off of Theology Beer Camp, this really raucous event that our friend Trip Fuller put on. And uh, I was able to sort of ground test some of these ideas of when we, when we compost, we're taking things that we consider to be waste items. They're things that we cannot readily use mm -hmm. and they're discarded and we're putting them in a pile somewhere. But then through a, a process, which, you know, is, is actually, you know, physical, but could be described as alchemical, various bacteria begin to break down these once useless and, and even maybe harmful things and turns them into rich soil, things that can be, um, you know, really fertile for the next season of growth of whatever a, a farmer or a backyard gardener is wanting to grow. And these processes that are, that are called uh, mesophilic, thermophilic, cooling and curing, I find really can map towards a, a healthy and generative way of letting go of what doesn't serve us, of feeling the heat of the breakdown of what didn't serve us, but then allowing it to cool and to cure and to truly be useful for spirit's next move. Yeah, it's funny listening to you talk about that, what comes to mind is how in our friendship over the years, like, I, you know, I, I joke, will joke about how like Jesus is like my on again, off again, boyfriend. Like mm -hmm. I have, mm -hmm. I, I get really irritated with just Christians or Christianity <laughs> sometimes. Sure. And I know that I can find ways to have a spiritual connection outside of it. And so I'll kind of like go through these phases where I just feel like I need some distance from it. And then I come back to it mm -hmm. and then I need some distance. It's like that lead to let it cool off for a bit and then yeah. coming back and say, okay, like, what is this good for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think in, in some of my conversations with you, sometimes you've, you, I think have always maintained that like 
feeling that Jesus is your homeboy or whatever. (laughs) I have, I have, um, sometimes we've had like, not, not disagreements or arguments, but like we push back against one another about Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, tell me more about what keeps you connected to Christianity and to Jesus and to that whole thing. That whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Why is Jesus still my homeboy after all these years? (laughs) I I think that one of the reasons I was able to sort of maintain and even, you know, flourish in faith when so many of my friends, um, you know, just found it utterly unhelpful and downright traumatic is kind of unusually, or, you know, at least it felt that way to me. I spent time in, in several different denominations for substantial periods of time before I was 18. Like my parents weren't just growing up in like one particular silo. They kind of church hopped every five or six years for different reasons. You know, originally we're Southern Baptist where my mom, you know, kind of came to faith. Then they had this baptism in the Holy Spirit experience that enabled them to quit 20 year smoking habits, cold Turkey, and started going to a Pentecostal church and then when they got disillusioned with the Pentecostal church a few years later, I wound my way into this uh, conservative Presbyterian church that had an emphasis on arts and theater. And, and I think that what that did for me is I, I was able to, you know, to use a biblical metaphor to separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit in that I saw each of these, you know, very um, fundamentalist denominations feel like they had a corner market on how they saw reality and their particular dogma and emphases. And and experiencing three of those, I kind of became a homegrown pluralist before I even fully understood what that meant. And I was able to exercise my own discernment and choice and realize that while each of these groups were part of a received tradition, they were also picking and choosing and actively iterating the expression of Christianity that they wanted to put forth in the world. And so by the time I was on my like third denomination as a teenager, I just began to read more widely. I was like, oh, all these, all these denominations think that they've got the corner market on things. Um, they can't all be right. But, but also, you know, as I would later learn the quip from Ken Wilber, no one is smart enough to be 100% wrong all the time. Uh, it's like, okay, maybe they all see a, a picture of something and they don't have the whole picture and I can continue looking and I can continue searching. So, mm-hmm. so I think my like naturally sort of bookish and, and nerdy self began to read more widely and also began to like attend more widely different kinds of spiritual circles. I discovered this decentralized house church movement right in between graduating from high school and starting college that introduced me to sort of decentralized leadership structures, Christian mystics, uh, and a lot of, you know, different, like open participatory gathering models. And so as I began to recognize that there was a wide umbrella of choice available, even within Christianity, never mind outside of it, which I also explored, you know, Zen Buddhism in college and, uh, and Quakers who kind of straddled the Christian world and a sort of broader and spiritual context, and in you know more recent years, have developed a deep appreciation for for Sufism, for mystical Islam, and and various esoteric traditions. It was it was kind of a twofold resilience that I developed. One is that there is actually really deep and wide tributaries within Christianity that I had no idea about as an evangelical. 
because they weren't telling me about, you know, Anabaptists and levelers and diggers and Quakers and all these really interesting movements that had so many distinctive, you know, prophetic, social and, and mystical bents to them. And that also there was this sort of wider world of other spiritualities out there who may or may not be ultimately compatible with my beliefs or values, but I didn't have to feel a priori defended against them. And, and you know, that there was stuff mm-hmm. that I could probably learn through a genuine exchange. And for whatever reason, both of those together kind of gave me a much deeper appreciation for Jesus and for the, the images of the divine that Jesus seems to reveal. Um, that's, that blows my, my fundamentalist faith away. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you, because I think that was, that was a great answer and it, it was very good. Like Mike Morrell as like a, a speaker or presenter kind of answer, <laughs> <laughs> All right. but I, I want to know maybe on a more personal level, mm. what and who is Jesus to you? And because mm. I, my sense is that there's something on a, a deeper emotional level that feels valuable to mm. you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm, that's a great question. Cut to the heart. <laughs> Who do I say that he is? Yeah. <laughs> Surely he is John the Baptist or Elijah. And I and I say this because over the years when I've said, oh, I just feel like I need some faith space from Jesus right mm-hmm. now. I feel like you've always kind of passionately advocated uh, yeah. for him. What's up with that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and it And it's impossible to entirely divorce that from my sort of nerdy cerebral side, because there is Mm -hmm. a sort of, um, I think, a marriage between my own contemplative practice, my own centering prayer practice, where, you know, and if 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 you're not familiar with with centering prayer, we've mentioned it a couple of times now, the essence of it is it's it's simply uh, sitting for about 20 minutes, knowing that you're, you're resting in the love of God. And then beyond that, though, you're not, there's no particular agenda, including concentration. The agenda is simply to be and to use a sacred word to, as a mechanism to release intrusive thoughts or really any kind of thought as they arrive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to condemn the fact that that I'm thinking, but simply to use that as a way of, of letting go. And even though I'm really bad at it, like I'm a constantly, you know, starting and, 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 and halting again at, at contemplative practice, I've been really bad at it consistently for, you know, going on 25 <laughs> years now. So uh, I think that, that that inculcates a certain felt sense of, of the presence of Jesus for me. And, but it's paired with, with various like really interesting and good scholarship about who, who was the historical Jesus. And, and what, I've, what I feel like I, I've gotten to know of him as a, a historical person, as well as a living presence, is that Jesus is the storyteller. He's this party thrower. He's someone who enjoys sharing meals with people. Relationships are everything to him, even though he's also an introvert that needs to get away from the crowd frequently uh, in order (laughs) to recharge. And that he's sort of like this hunter-gatherer out of time because his conception of of the kingdom of God, of of the space that his you know, his fa- father, you know, that he, he refers to the creator in this very intimate familial term is a space where we should consider the lilies of the field because they actually outdress King Solomon in all of his splendor. 
and that we should take no thought for tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries for itself, but there's like a simple abundance that can be found today. And, and I'm imagining that if I'm some of the, the rich women who actually sort of bankroll Jesus, they might roll their eyes a little bit and say, hey, these resources are coming from somewhere, buddy. But nonetheless, he was able to create through his teaching and his presence, this idea of being radically present in the moment and, and sharing an abundance of, of meal and, and even, you know, miracle and magic, the ways that he, you know, brought healing to people that I just think is, is infectious. It's, it's worth looking at. It, it is a space as our more sort of um, progressive and radical Christian friends note of, of radical equality, equity, shalom, peace, and change. But it's also primarily sourced in joy, kind of what, you know, the anarchist Emma Goldman said, if your revolution doesn't have dancing, I'm not interested. And mm -hmm. so there's this sense of, of infectious joy and, and communality with, with God and each other that I find to be very, um, very this worldly and earthy and, and, and pleasant as opposed to some other more ascetic paths that seem to say we need to lay aside uh, pleasure and the world of the senses in order to live a spiritual life. Hmm. Hmm. Do you, now let me ask you, because as someone who is into contemplative Christianity, there is often an asceticism there. Mm-hmm. That's and true. I'm wondering, how do you do you see those two things as being necessarily opposed, the asceticism and the abundance and mm -hmm. you know uh, revelry, I suppose? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I feel like I have two different answers to that question. The first one is definitely influenced by by Cynthia Bourgeau, who you know you mentioned a little earlier, who's mm -hmm. you know one of the foremost teachers of of centering prayer and beyond today. And, you know, her, the very first book of hers that I discovered when I was at the American Academy of Religion meeting that I like gate crashed back in 2005, uh, is this book called Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening. And it had just come out at the time. And in it, she was doing this very nerdy comparison and contrast of the inner uh, mechanics of different meditation forms. And she was trying to say, she was trying to rescue Centering Prayer's reputation because she was like, this isn't just some bastardized you know, a Zen Christian mashup made by monks who were desperate because the, the hippies were hitchhiking to the, the Buddhist, you know, monastery down the street instead of hanging out with them in, in snow mass. But then mm -hmm. it's actually an ingenious way of inculcating uh, one's internal muscle memory to the generosity of the universe and to the generosity of God, that rather than some, um, you know, focused meditation practices that are all about storing up energy and accumulating energy, which is, I think, what asceticism actually is. For all of its denial of the external senses, one is trying to, to shore up one's ability to spiritually concentrate. And Cynthia presented Centering Prayer, by contrast, and its, its roots in the English classic, The Cloud of Unknowing, as almost this sort of drunken master way of doing meditation where you're, you're just sort of like, hey, I'm gonna have thoughts and I'm gonna let them go using my sacred word. And, and she tied this to the, um, the hymn that's preserved in Philippians 4, I believe, which, which is widely regarded to be the earliest hymn that we have um, still preserved. 
And it says something of, of, in Christianity um, that, you know, Jesus not considering equality with God something to be grasped, instead took the form of a servant and, and released and poured out. And so she saw centering prayer as a way of saying, I don't have to store up this energy. I can just continue to pour it out because I'm confident that as I, as I learn that internal mechanism of letting go on the mat, I will bring that same form of generosity and release into my daily life. And so she, she boldly says that rather than being ascetic, uh, centering prayer is tantric in its orientation, mm. which, you know, I think that that could be fleshed out even more of what a truly tantric uh, Christianity would look like. But, but one of my responses is no, actually Christian contemplation doesn't have to be ascetic, even though it often is. And then my second answer to that is, and of course, you know, sometimes we make these neat divisions and yeah. it is all of a piece. And I think there probably is a time to store and accumulate energy. There is a time to fast as well as a time to feast. There is a time to be inward as well as expressive. And so, you know, as I've worked with that tantric understanding of centering prayer for, you know, 15 or so years now, I also supplement it with other practices that actually Cynthia also advocates for uh, from this weird esoteric teacher named Georgi Ivanovich Gurdjieff, who has various um, active contemplation practices around the sensations of the body and receiving higher energies. And some of those are more ascetic, even though they're still very much lived out in a householder context of being, you know, a person out in the world. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I I mean, I would say, I agree that I, I think sometimes there's this false distinction between asceticism and a sort of more, I don't know, abundance mindset, whatever you want to call it, a, ta- a more tantric yeah. sort of aspect, because in my experience, they, they do feed one another. Yeah. And I've heard people really like, um, just come down hard on these ascetic practices. And I'm like, well, if, if you're doing these ascetic practices, because they think they're going to make you a good person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're going to feel really um, oppressive and damaging. But in a lot of ways, what they're doing is they're, and you see this in all traditions, including like indigenous ones where like the shaman fasts and goes off into the wilderness on his own so he could connect with the spirits, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's something about taking time to put away some of these things that our bodies are bodies are always craving like yeah. sex and food and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, it fine tunes your perception to something else that yeah. we're normally not attuned to. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite stories is I've, I've been studying, um, kind of looking into the desert fathers recently. And, and I went through a phase years ago when I was like really into them for a while mm-hmm. and I've been doing it recently as part of my research into the history of the Virgin Mary, who I, I love Mary, I pray to her regularly, and um, and really like how she becomes this, especially in medieval uh, Christianity, she really becomes almost a goddess, and, and where this, this sense of her comes from. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it goes back to um, second and third century Syria, which is also the time where there's a lot of all these people going into the desert, both men and women going into the desert and practicing asceticism. And they're doing it 
in the Egyptian desert, but also in the Syrian desert. And so a lot of the streams, I, I would say probably really all of the streams of uh, contemplative Christianity, both in the West and the East, really go back to the Desert Fathers. Yeah. And one of my favorite stories, and I can't remember now where I read it because it was years ago, but there's a monk who basically, uh, there, there's one of these, they would tell these stories about these wise elders, you know, and uh, so there's this father so-and-so who is in the desert and some young monk is coming to him and saying, um, you know, tell me what I need to do, you know, to, to become perfected or whatever. And he says, well, um, you know, just go into your cave and your cave will teach you anything or something like that. He tells him basically just go and do, do your work, do your practice. And, uh, and the guy keeps coming back and he says, well, I tried this and it wasn't working. So what should I do? So he gives him something else to do. And so he comes back and he, uh, he's like, well, I, I tried this and it's not working. What else should I do? And finally, the guy comes back to the wise elder and he says, you know what? I've tried all these things. Nothing's working. Screw it. I don't need you. Mm-hmm. And the elder says, finally, you're getting it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and there is something um, that's interesting to me that if you look at the history, and I haven't written about this yet, but I, I will eventually, um, there is there's something where this experience of Mary as this uh, almost earth goddess like figure that goes back to these these ancient Middle Eastern goddesses who existed within Christian or I should say within ancient Judaism before because yeah. because at, at some point the people who became the Jews were worshiping goddesses as well as as gods mm-hmm. um so this this experience of the divine feminine that is um, almost like this, this rich, abundant, life-giving energy, life-giving force um, that you can find in something like the Akathist hymn, which is a hymn sung in Orthodox Christianity to the Virgin Mary that's very, very old. Mm-hmm. Um, that's springing out of the same place that all these people are doing these ascetic practices. Mm. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think there's something about these two things that are feeding one another. Yeah, I agree. You can't keep the divine feminine down. And uh, it's weird that, um, you know, that the Judeo-Christian God is often conceived of as exclusively male and is often seen as a kind of um, perpetual bachelor, even though there's this notion of being married to Israel and later married to, you know, the church, the bride of Christ. But you're right, you know, in in the early sort of proto-Hebraic religion, there was also Asherah as the sort of consort Mm -hmm. of, of Yahweh who was venerated in the wild places and the high places. And we can actually get a pretty good picture of just how popular this practice was based on how vehemently these deuteronomists were trying to to shut it down. Um, And it's, you know, it's a mystery and maybe a whole different conversation as to like why this divine feminine was uh, suppressed in this fertile crescent uh, religion as it began to, to manifest, but, but it's hard to keep down. And, and, and it did, you know, again, reassert itself, like you're saying, through this veneration of, of Mary as the mother of God. And, 
you know, interestingly, in my house church days, where I spent this, a decade in this house church movement, which I mentioned earlier, is where I discovered the mystics. And there was also this very, you know, egalitarian uh, treatment of women that was was novel from my evangelical days. Like women had equal say in the direction of our overall, you know, community and in our meetings, we're, we're free to speak and to share. And we really did um, elevate this sort of bridal mysticism, these places where in Paul and John's letters, you know, the church is referred to as this bride of Christ who will consummate her love, uh, you know, with, with Jesus. And we actually rewrote a number of, um, you know, popular uh, evangelical hymns to be singing either to the bride or from the perspective of the bride. And we kind of mm -hmm. mystically imagined ourselves in this sort of rapturous connection. And so, you know, it, it's yet another example of, um, I don't know, I think that a lot of, of ex-evangelicals cringe at the Jesus is my boyfriend music uh, of, of the worship music world and industry. And I get it because a lot of them are like these sort of cheesy, you know, pop hooks. But, you know, going back to, um, I don't know, the name escapes me at the moment, but if you look at the history of commentaries on the Song of Solomon, for instance, uh, you can see actually people leaning all the way into that, leaning into the sort of eroticism of the divine mm -hmm. human interaction and placing ourselves in the archetypal feminine space. Um, or what you're describing, which is, you know, looking at the sort of external archetype of, of divinity that's right here in plain sight in our own tradition. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it, what comes to mind as you say that is someone like Bernard of Clairvaux. That's who is, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Who, who uh, has, I think, a deep erotic connection both to Mary and to Jesus, it seems mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, I think in the past I would have dismiss that as like well of course because he was like you know celibate and he couldn't have sex with like a real woman so he has to like mm -hmm. make your or man I don't know you know mm -hmm. obviously obviously I'm sure some of these uh these monks were were gay mm -hmm. um but but yeah like we kind of just we can dismiss this sort of spiritual eroticism and mysticism as just being um the product of a, uh, a a stunted a, a sexually stunted sort of uh, consciousness but you know it's interesting as I've been kind of studying more about history and and culture and how they evolve over time really realizing that a lot of cultures have really struggled uh sometimes with what to do with like surplus men or like people mm. who just don't don't uh there's not a space for them in the marriage market for whatever reason. Right. And, um, and one of these, you know, one, one of them, one way that people dealt with it was like the Vikings. They sent them out to raid <laughs> and pillage people, sure. but in medieval Christianity, they put them into monasteries hmm. and, um, and they often worked the land and, you know, they, they did all sorts of things, including, develop mystical theology. So um I think that there's a lot of beauty and a value to be had there and it and it can inform how we relate to the world around us. And I don't think it's a coincidence that people who go into the desert or go to live these uh simpler lifestyles where they're where they're sort of getting away from civilization and purging themselves of some of the effects of civilization. Yes. Um 
find this deep well of relationality with the actual natural world around them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, like our like our friend uh, Sophie Strand, who writes so evocatively of her romance with the the yeah the sensate richness mm. of the natural world. I think it was a contemporary example of of that. How we can find yeah a very real romance with uh, with all of life, and you know if we get to experience that with a human partner, bonus. And yeah, there's just there's just so much up and down the great chain of being that can be loved. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you a little bit about one thing that you and I think both have an interest in is like the occult, Western occultism, which to me is really just the sort of shadow expression of Christianity. It's like all the the sort of pieces that like don't fit into the official doctrine or structures. Right. Um, and so there's this kind of parallel tradition of Western occultism that uh, grows alongside it. And I think you and I both have an interest in it. And I, I'd love it if you'd tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. You know, as I alluded to earlier, like I grew up in, in such a um, hardcore fundamentalist upbringing. And it, it's almost hard to describe for people who haven't lived in it. Um, you know, if I were to speculate, I would say that my mom... Um, you know, discovered evangelical faith as, as a refuge from a, a chaotic home life and upbringing growing up and, and just really glommed on to the most um, restrictive uh, subcultural elements that were popular at that time in the 80s and early 90s. So one day I would be, you know, watching He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and, and playing with my He-Man action figures. And the next day she'd be grabbing them up and saying, no, this, these like demons can come through these things and we need to burn them for your own good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that happened so many times. And there were these like folk tales that, uh, that circulated in evangelical circles of the time, like the unkillable Cabbage Patch Kid doll. Uh, that, yes. you know, because, because you adopted Cabbage Patch Kids, for some reason, this really creeped out evangelicals because you, know, you were giving them a name and they had a birth certificate and it was like they kind of had souls, was, was the belief. And, and when, when, when these Christians began to get convicted about how bad the Cabbage Patch dolls were and they would like try to throw them away, they would show up back in the house mysteriously and they didn't know how until finally they had to burn the dolls in order to make sure they were gone. So there was this, like, this real atmosphere of fear and paranoia and it was all pinned on the occult. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a sort of satanic panic that there were witches and warlocks who were placing razor blades and kids candy because they just wanted to see, you know, children suffer. And, you know, this was the time when a rather dubious practice of repressed memories through hypnosis was becoming popular and people started mm-hmm. remembering supposedly all of these, you know, archetypal satanic rituals. So I grew up terrified of anything that would be considered the occult. And at the same time, being a curious kid who would would end up reading more widely, as I got older, I recognized, as you're saying, there are all these sort of folk practices that didn't fall under the neat rubric of what, you know, certain institutional expressions of of Christianity approved of. And so Mm -hmm. 
if we could say that mysticism was barely tolerated and it was a way of, of directly invoking a transcendent relationship between the soul and God for sanctification, for virtue, for elevation. And even that was like barely tolerated. It was kept in, you know, monasteries and convents for Catholics and, and Protestants were like, no, we don't want any of that. It's superstitious. Uh, what often gets termed the occult are those same ways of invoking God, but also invoking, you know, angels and, and other spirits and ancestors. And it's not only for personal development and growth and virtue and, and you know, growing in Christ-likeness, but also for very direct benefit and gain on more practical matters. You know, I'm, I'm looking for love or I'm trying to, you know, not be sick anymore. And so there, that was even more uh, censured, it seems, by a lot of the powers that be in, in certain cultures. But what I discovered when I started actually looking into like, um, you know, third century and onward Egyptian uh, folk Christian magical practices or, or various grimoire traditions is that these magical spells and incantations are, are so thoroughly uh, Christian, so thoroughly Jewish, so thoroughly biblical that it just kind of blows mm -hmm. my mind. You know, even, even more recent, you know, formulations like, you know, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn led by the, the so-called great beast, Aleister Crowley, when, you know, we were talking about this the other day. Rebecca. Yeah, he, I don't think he let, he didn't lead the Golden Dawn. That was, uh, what's his name? Samuel Mathers, I think. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah but he, he, the, he, the did, he was in it and then he developed yeah. sure. uh, and I can't remember what the organization is, but yeah, out of that. Yes. My bad. But yeah, you know, and, and the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram and other spaces, you're literally chanting Hebrew names for God and then invoking archangels. And that's just a far cry from how I was raised taught that it was all like devil worship. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's just, you know, really interesting to, to see that a lot of what we were afraid of um, growing up was actually very parallel to what we were doing, especially in Pentecostal circles. Mm -hmm. we're, we're invoking the Holy Spirit. We are praying for the sick. We are praying for our own prosperity often uh, in Pentecostal circles. You know, there, there was this sort of insightful critique against, you know, why do we, you know, say that we can't be blessed with good things? And, and obviously that can carry over into an, another extreme of, of materialism. But you know, I just saw it more in common than not. And I've begun to slowly incorporate certain, um, you know, magical practices into my daily life. For instance, the breastplate of St. Patrick uh, prayer, which is a very magical invocation of, um, you know, of God, of the angels, of the apostles, of the elements of earth. And it's a way of, of being in sync with, with the whole, all the energies of creation up and down the great chain of being for my well-being and then to be, you know, a blessing to others. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I've always appreciated both about Catholicism and some of these 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 occult traditions which were often being practiced by monks in uh in monasteries and people like that as well as they were incorporated in incorporating and syncretizing some of the pre-Christian pagan um, pagan beliefs as well, is that um, I do see whatever, to me, whatever we call God really is something like the collective consciousness of this 
ecosystem that we're all living in. And, um, you know, this idea that comes from Plato about the, uh, the sort of the one, the universal, the absolute, um, falling or descending into materiality and like creating all these things, all these different sort of beings and entities, which are sometimes perceived as illusions by spiritual people. Um, to me, that, that really is in some ways the story of the big bang, right? Of, of this single point of energy bursting out into the universe and evolving into all these different forms. And that unity for me lies not in just trying to return to that single source of undifferentiated oneness, but rather um, allowing ourselves to become distinct and differentiated and then so that we can be in relationship with all the other distinct and differentiated forms. And together we grow into some sort of ecosystem that's mm -hmm. creating a, a more three-dimensional kind of oneness, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I find that a lot of these magical practices, so these so-called quote-unquote occult practices where we are talking to um, angels, invoking angels and you know, even exploring perhaps our demons, um, as well as some of the, the, the practices that are more about connecting to ancestors and saints and things like that. It's a profound way of coming into relationship with the world around me, um, rather than trying to escape it. Yeah, I think you said something really important there, Rebecca, when you were talking about a more holistic sense of oneness, because I spent several years um, really elevating a perspective that has come to be known as non-duality, which mm -hmm. tends to be this sort of um, Eastern spirituality derived sense of, of the oneness of all things. But it's from this sort of fundamental conviction that reality as it manifests is, is Maya, it's illusion. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and it ends up being this very sort of, um, I would almost call it hyper-Protestant in that like Protestantism got rid of, of angels and mysticism and so many extraneous things and just wanted to focus on God. And I feel like non-duality as it's often taught um, is just wanting to get to the undifferentiated still point of reality, uh, you know, inside of us with, to the exclusion of, of the mess of the yeah. world. Yeah. And, and, and I'll never forget, I, I have a friend who um, is an, was an Anglican priest in Canada and he was very active in um, integral theory spaces and non-duality spaces and, and wrote a lot about sort of non-duality and, and getting to this place of, of recognizing the illusion of, of reality and the oneness of everything. And then one day his whole emphasis began to change and he, he like stopped posting to this popular website he created around non-duality and he started um, doing these various shamanic practices and um, Akashic record lookups and all of these different things. And, and I asked him, like, this is, this is a shift, like what's changed for you? And he said, he recognized that, you know, he had a renewed appreciation for animism and shamanism and indigenous practices because he realized that he was excluding so much in his sort of Western appropriation of Eastern ideas of, of non-duality. And that, that the way to actually experience oneness is a oneness of communion rather than a oneness of just trying to slice out everything that, uh, you know, didn't fit a pristine inner state. Yeah. 
And I just think that that's that's such a valuable reframe that helps us avoid spiritual bypassing, avoid, you know, shutting things out that don't serve some weird fantasy of enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's funny to me because I will hear um, both from people perhaps on a more animist side that like uh, who get really um, critical of the idea of oneness. And then people on on the the oneness, the non-duality side who get really critical of, oh, these lower forms of like delusion, you know, delusional spirits and things like that. And I think it really is for me, it's, it's a both and it's, it's being non-dual about (laughs) non-duality. Right, exactly. Um, It's like there is this place that we can go to within ourselves where we do perceive the fundamental oneness where everything around us kind of dissolves Mm -hmm. and feels meaningless. And yet we can never stay there. Right. We always have to, we can go there. in, In my own experience, we can go there and we can get insights. Yes. But then we always have to come back into the material world of differentiated form. And we have to decide how we're going to live in it and be in it. Absolutely. And what can cause a lot of suffering, I think, is after we have those transcendent experiences of oneness, if we have a worldview or belief system that that is the ultimate good and that somehow the rest of this is lesser. But if we understand, as you know, my my one-time co-author Richard Rohr also titled a book, Everything Belongs, then that means that my experience of transcendent oneness is is vital for me. You know, it's not unlike Jesus going out to be by himself on the mountaintop or or in the Mm -hmm. wilderness, but then returning to the world of form. But then the world of form gets permission to be re-enchanted, that we can, you know, suddenly Mm -hmm. see all of these, you know, ways that the seemingly mundane and even chaotic and even contradictory elements of our lives really do fit. And, And it's not some sort of cosmic mistake that we exist yeah. in these bodies in this world. Um, but, but nor is it that this, these bodies in this world is all there is, that, that there is that, that unique creative tension that you're right. Uh, so many spiritual people love to come down on one side or the other. Yeah. So speaking to that whole idea of everything belongs, what would you say to someone who is like, wow, this, but this occult tradition, there's some really dark stuff there. You mentioned Aleister Crowley, who is mm-hmm. not the most pleasant guy you know, in the world. Um, there are people invoking demons and things like that. What do you have to say to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I have a couple of responses to that. One is, you know, absolutely move at the speed of your own comfort. Like don't, don't violate your own sense of rightness and intentionally do something that you feel at some core of your being is, is absolutely wrong or transgressive because that can be um, really fracturing. But at the same time, you know, if you're willing to say, Hey, I'm mostly going to be in my comfort zone, but I am willing to kind of dip my little toe into something that might be a little uncomfy Um, You know, it it is interesting thinking about the idea of invoking demons, which is definitely a part of, you know, certain occult traditions, including occult traditions that were, you know, grimoire texts that were formulated by monks and and other other believers. And so, you know, I know for me growing up um, Pentecostal, the only thing you do to demons is you sort of cast them out. 
you know, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Um, but I feel like the grimoire traditions sort of reveal the idea of, of the demonic as also, you know, having wisdom to give us because it does represent our own shadow side, our own unintegrated selves, the things that I might want to hide or deny or repress. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these invocations are very carefully constructed. They create boundaries around, you know, what the, uh, the demons can or cannot do and and I sort of and I haven't personally uh, I should just say experimented yet with this sort of direct invocation of of the demonic but but as I as I look into it it does seem like a way of, of frankly facing my shadow of seeing what mm-hmm. what it wants to teach me what it wants to show me and could this too belong and and even though Jesus brother James said you know resist the devil and he will flee Jesus himself times seem to have a more integrated perspective where he says, agree with your adversary quickly. And, you know, origin of Alexandria, very influential, you know, early Mm -hmm. church theologian, he believed that, you know, not only was he a a universalist in the sense that Mm -hmm. he believed that all humanity would eventually be, you know, united in the redemptive love of God and Christ, he even believed that Lucifer and the fallen angels would eventually take their seat at the table. So, you know, talk about everything belongs. There's this, the sense of we're all serving a function, even those of us who are in this life being harmful and, and acting out and, and doing really, you know, negative things that, that it all, it all fits in this sort of composty kind of way. And so why would I not want to, you know, face yeah. my demons? Yeah, absolutely. I I so agree with that perspective. And it kind of dovetails with some things that our friend Beck Cranford and I were talking about on my my last episode. Um and it's funny because I've been I've been delving into origin quite a bit lately, of course, going into the the Desert Fathers. He was very influential. He was also declared a heretic by the church. Um, but his a lot of his teachings and ideas continued to influence the desert fathers who did write some of the official doctrine of the church. So it's really, uh, it's really interesting. And it, it, for me, it, it, it confirms something that I always felt deeply as a child, uh, which was that I didn't really, if we believed in love, like, shouldn't we my, my sense was like, shouldn't we love the devil too? And I, at that point, I probably had this naive kind of idea of it. Like, oh, just like, let's go find the bad people and just show them that we're really nice and make them happy. Uh, But, uh, but as I've gotten older and I, I will say clearly, you know, sometimes we just need to say no to some things like, like, you know what, maybe somebody somewhere can love that person, but right now I don't have the bandwidth for them. So that's fine. Um, But the more I have learned to love the places and the parts of myself that I've seen as problematic or even bad or evil or sinful, mm-hmm. it's like the more I find that actually they can alchemize or it's almost like that they just need to find their niche in the ecosystem of my being. And I understand that they really have a purpose or a function. Mm-hmm. You know, so like my anger, my, uh, 
my anger is really my ability to see clearly and set boundaries when, when I need to sit, set them and to say, no, you know, mm-hmm. my, what I sometimes feel is like a sort of bitchy manipulativeness is actually just my ability sometimes to see clearly to the truth of people. And I can use that to harm, or I can use that to heal. And, and that is something mm-hmm. um, I, I'll never forget. Uh, one of my teachers saying to me, like, you see the truth that people don't want you to see. And that makes them angry with you. And I, and I got to the point where I realized, well, I can, I can kind of take this like, haha, I'm just like saying this stuff that you don't want me to say, because it's the truth, or I can use it in a much more generative and, and giving way to just see what's inside of people and to nurture and love that and allow, allow these things that maybe they don't want to see inside themselves for them to begin to accept and integrate them. And so there, I think there is a really beautiful way it, and it ties back to what Jesus says in the gospel of Thomas, which is one of, um, scholars believe is probably the earliest, uh, collection of his sayings. At least some, some believe that, uh, where he says, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. And if you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. And I think all of us are walking around with these things inside yeah. of us that we're afraid to look at. Yeah. And um, and so, and I think there's a lot of things, a lot of truths about the world around us and about mm-hmm. other people in our lives that we're afraid to look at too. Mm-hmm. And if we can face them with bravery and truth and love, I think there's a lot of potential there for this composting, this yes. alchemical composting that we're talking about to happen. Absolutely. And, you know, the word occult simply means hidden. And yeah. so it's, you know, it's a, it's a tradition that has been hidden from us in many ways. And it encourages us to sort of boldly step forward into these hidden parts of the cosmos of the world and, and inside of our own beings. And, you know, the people who do this are sometimes known as, as mages or magicians, you know, this magician archetype being, you know, having the ability to, to transform, to alchemize, to, to compost like a gardener. And, you know, as, as one more sort of nerdy adjunct to your, your very personal share about how specific um, shadow material has benefited you. I, I love what the, uh, the scholar Walter Wink came to in his own practical demonology and angelology, because Wink grew up. I didn't know he had a demonology and angelology. I just knew his whole, um, what's the, what's the thing? The, the myth of redemptive violence. That's what I. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. sure. Yeah, so so for if, you, if you're just not hearing this name, Walter Wink was like this United Methodist background, um, biblical scholar, grew up very mainline, very progressive, and, and like a lot of the people that we're talking about, some of our friends who ended up with a very cerebral and intellectualized faith, you know, by his own account, he barely believed in God, never mind angels and demons. But when he spent time in, in South Africa, at the heart of apartheid, he confronted the demonic in a visceral and personal way that he couldn't deny, that that felt like a real evil power. And it sent him back to the New Testament texts and the Hebrew Bible. And and basically he came up with a whole different interpretation that is really compelling. And and, and briefly, it's the idea that we all contain, um, that, that, that all institutions, all groups of people contain a corporate spirituality, a collective spirituality that can become Personal, personified. And Did he call it an egregore? 
<laughs> right? Uh, he said he simply called them angels and demons. He, yeah. he, he mentions the really great point that in the first seven chapters of Revelation, um, each one of those um, chapters is addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Laodicea. Mm-hmm. And, and he says that the angel in a, in a dialectic and non-reductive way both has its own persona and personality, but is also the expression of the collective spirituality of that community of people. And that when a group of people are serving humanity with their collective um, expression, it can be rightly referred to as angelic. Mm. But on the other hand, he points to places like the archangel wrestling with the prince of Persia and says that there are also collective entities that are, are against the purposes of humanity and of growth, and that those collective spiritualities that are personified become demonic. And that, you know, the most blatant example being that the, you know, the demons that, that, that Jesus cast out of the man who's in chains and cutting himself, he says, we are legion. Well, mm-hmm. what's a legion but the Roman occupying army that was oppressing the Jewish people. And so for, for Wink, he began to see this sort of deep intersection of the, the mystical and the political and saw exorcism, not only in the sort of, you know, binary ways that are often done by, you know, Roman Catholics and Pentecostals alike, where you're simply trying to cast out, but also ways of, of trying to help turn around from bottom up the collective spirituality of a group of people by looking at well, how did we begin to turn from a way that was coherent and serving the whole to almost like a cancerous cell that begins attacking itself? Mm. And I just, and, 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 I, and I believe that Wink, you know, is, was ultimately a universalist as well. So he didn't see this as, you know, simply wanting to, you know, to cast out, but, but wanting to understand and to, to bring the kind of skill and tenacity that I see a magician doing as well as maybe our more winsome activists and community organizers, people who are wanting to get creative, wanting to get curious uh, rather than simply, you know, coming down with the hammer. Yeah. With a really binary viewpoint or yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. You know, one thing that comes up for me is as you talk about this is one of the things, one of the, another criticism that I often hear of um, of this sort of magical occult path is that it's in opposition to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about um, this ancient hymn in Philippians about how Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he sort of emptied himself and, and let it it mm-hmm. flow through him, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that that's considered the right way and people critique uh, doing magic or occultism as uh, trying to grasp that equality with God. And in fact, I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at some of, uh, things like from, from the her hermetic corpus that informs a lot of, a lot of this concept, these concepts within occultism, that idea of making yourself equal to God or the gods is, is part of yes the, what the the posture you're taking when you're doing magic. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. 
Yeah, I absolutely can. Because, you know, the great thing is, this isn't just abstract uh, philosophy. If we're bringing, say, Jesus into it, because, you know, the same, the same Jesus who, you know, in that Philippians hymn is the picture of surrender, the same Jesus who also surrenders on, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but, but thy will be done. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, surrender and flow is definitely a part of who Jesus is. But so is taking action. So is driving the money changers out of the temple. So are Mm -hmm. all of the actions of of healing that he did. Like to say that Jesus was simply a passive man uh, in in the gospel accounts is is untrue on the face of it. And not only that, you, you also see the sort of the other side of standing in the authority of the gods that we see in mm-hmm. some of the magical invocations and that yeah. we see in the breastplate of St. Patrick. That's also thoroughly biblical as well. Starting in, mm, I want to say Luke 10, where Jesus, you know, anoints the 70 and says, I'm giving you all of my authority to go out and cast out demons and to do these things and to, you know, to heal the sick. Like you go and do these things under my authority. And, and Paul writes about putting on the whole armor of God. It is itself a kind of magical invocation of, you know, the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of, you know, the spirit, et cetera. So I, I think that, that the Christian tradition contains both the, the receptivity and the surrender, as well as the sort of whole idea of being in Christ or standing in the place of God or claiming one's divine authority. Like it, it's about flowing flowing in different ways in different seasons. Mm-hmm. And it's precisely from a place of surrender that we can become more effective. Yeah. And I think that that's what yeah. contemplative spirituality, what mysticism and what magic can teach uh, a socially conscientious person who might be listening to this, who might be feeling burned out that, man, I always feel like I'm drawing on my own power. And, and that incidentally is something that magic also teaches us is not to do spells or invocations that steal our own life force, but that we are always invoking, we are always letting mm-hmm. the whole flow through us. And, and yes, it involves part of our own volition and energy, but it's not supposed to um, you know, completely drain our battery because we have so many other right. resources in the, uh, the web of being to draw from. Right. That was one, that was like a really profound lesson that I learned in my own kind of energy healing and and doing like readings and stuff is that um, I kept trying to like really do it right and do it well and make sure that people got like a good result. And it was so draining me and burning out, burning me out. And when I kind of just let that sat back and realized I'm just a channel, like really my job is just to like get out of the way and be a vessel for this larger divine power that wants to pour through me, which isn't separate for me, but you know, um, it's so much easier. It's so much easier and it doesn't drain me. And, you know, it's really whatever healing is happening is between this other person Mm -hmm. and God. It's it's really not about me. I'm just making myself a channel, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do we, how do we like rightly appraise, you know, how we are, are simply a vessel versus standing in our own ability. Yeah. You know, you, you've told a story, Rebecca, that, uh, that has, has always tickled me, but, but it's really stuck with me. And it was a story from one of your teachers. I don't know if you want to share it about letting, letting myself be me and letting Jesus be Jesus. And sometimes we just got to like differentiate the energies. Um, oh, is it, is it when, 
it's funny because I, I, this is my, my, my psychic teacher, Nancy Rebecca. And I, I told a story from her in my last episode too, Um, but I'll tell, I'll tell this one too. This is a different one. Yeah. She talked about um, how she had a client come to her one day uh, who wanted some healing and, um, and she really felt like Jesus specifically wanted to help with the healing. And she said, is it okay if, you know, I work with Jesus and they're like, oh yeah, we love Jesus. Like we feel really safe with him. Mm-hmm. So he kind of came into her aura, into her energy field and helped her to do this healing for these people, for this family, I think. And um, afterwards, the next day she went to uh, her school where she'd been learning all of these esoteric techniques. And somebody said to her, one of the teachers said, oh, you've been working with Jesus, haven't you? And she was like, yeah, how did you know? And they're like, well, he's still in your energy field. He's still in your aura. And they're like, Jesus is great, but now you've got to like clear him out because you need to be in your own aura. Like he doesn't need to be there all the time. (laughs) And I thought that was so fascinating. And uh, I, I do think... You know, going back to this idea of surrender versus standing in our own power, to me, it's like, it's like, it's like breathing. It's, it's, it's like, no, do we need to be taking in the spirit all the time? No, like we take it in and then, and then we metabolize it and turn it into something else that we breathe back out into the world. Right. And, um, and yeah, I think that actually kind of helped me understand, like, because in evangelicalism, there is this desire a lot of times, and even in other streams of Christianity to to think we've got to be exactly like Jesus. Like when Jesus says, I'm the way he's saying, you've got to do everything that I did and be just like me and, 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 and sort of um, just merge with me and like have this like weird codependent relationship with me. And I don't think that's what he was saying at all. He's saying, like, like fully marry yourself to the divine source and let yourself become fully inhabited by it in your own unique way, just like mm-hmm. I have yes. so that you can become more fully yourself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have an ambivalent relationship with those scholars and mystics that try to draw an over differentiation between Jesus and the Christ. But at the same time, I, I do see a truth of that, of, of Christ simply means the anointed and the anointing mm-hmm. and that all of these New Testament, you know, examples of being in Christ and how we're baptized in the Christ, I don't believe is, is meant to encourage spiritual codependency. But yes, I actually do have a warm and devotional relationship with Jesus. And there are unique ways that, that Christ, the anointing, wants to manifest in, in my life mm-hmm. and in the world. And so... Yeah, uh, that's why I, I love that that story that you tell of your teacher. I don't think it's, you know, blasphemous or impious. Um, one of my, my favorite books that actually made a difference in my deconstruction and, and emerging church days, although it came completely from outside of this world, is a book called The Hidden Face of God by Richard Elliott Friedman, who is mm. a popular Hebrew biblical scholar. And, and he makes the point that in the narrative of the Hebrew Bible, in its Hebrew canonical order, we go from a really overt, almost cartoonish, hand-holding, um, you know, image of Yahweh to a very mystical and sublime um, divine presence by the end of the canon. That we go from God walking around, you know, in the garden, having conversations like a human being, 
to eventually mediation through angels and dreams, to eventually we see an entire book of the Bible, Ruth, where God isn't even mentioned, and yet these divine processes are happening. And he points to this enigmatic phrase, I want to say it's in uh, Exodus or Deuteronomy, where Yahweh actually says, I will withdraw my face from them and see what their fate will be. And, and he makes the point that this wasn't capricious or cruel, but that it was good parenting, that there was a sense of, I have these people, I've shown them my presence, I've shown them my way, and now I want to see them stand on their own two feet. And that, interestingly, Friedman, though Jewish, saw Jesus and the story in the New Testament as a microcosm of that, of the overt presence of the incarnate God, and then the, you know, crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and indwelling, as then the, the early Jesus movement having to live with, okay, what is this divine presence? How are we going to, to incarnate it? And, and I think that, you know, magic and mysticism can be a wonderful way to actually learn uh, spiritual maturity and spiritual sobriety as we do participate in that inflow of energies mm -hmm. and then find the ability to, you know, stand within our own energies. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I'm wondering as we get towards the end of um, our time here, is there anything, well, first, what what are some resources you, you might recommend for people who are interested in some of this uh, magic and mysticism that we've been talking about? Mm. Probably a really accessible introduction would be a book called Inner Christianity by Richard Smoley. Mm -hmm. uh, Smoley is, um, yeah, he's, he's a really interesting kind of comparative scholar. And he's, he's done further um, explorations on Christianity since then. But I would start with that one. It's about 15 years old, where he looks at the sort of bridge between what we might call the mystical and what we might call the occult and kind of tracing, tracing its origins in Christianity. And, and giving some practical, um, you know, handles for this sort of thing. Um, gosh, beyond that, I mean, you know, you recently turned me on to uh, to a, an excellent book that's kind of more maybe the deep end, but it's a book on, on angel invocations and and records of, uh, by by Frater um, Ashen Chasen, if that's how you pronounce his name. I think, yeah, uh, yeah. You can just Google him, and and he he goes through some of the um, the um, Art of Drawing Spirits into Crystals, which is a book by a, I want to say, 16th century Christian named uh, Trimetheus. Again, I could be butchering the pronunciation. But, but yeah, there, there are various, you know, places to look. I would also just shamelessly put a plug in if you want to um, subscribe to my email newsletter. Mm -hmm. I regularly share different practices um, from mystical and sometimes occult Christian traditions you can look up, you know, my site on mikemorell.org forward slash bonus chapter, and you'll, you'll get a bonus chapter of my book with Father Richard Rohr on the divine dance that includes some, um, actually some practical experiments and exercises that you can do. Um, and from there, you know, you can, you can see what I might be uh, encouraging folks to do uh, in any given month. Like we recently did a novena, which is a nine-day prayer um, involving the Archangel Michael that I, I drew from some Eastern Orthodox and, and Catholic sources that a lot of people really seem to get a lot of value out of. Mm. 
I, yeah, thank you for those uh, resources. And I also definitely wanted to make sure that you told people about your website and where they can find you. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there, you know, another thing I would recommend that we both talked about, we're both big fans of Cynthia Bougeau. And I know she was kind of my gateway into, um, into mysticism. And, and she's definitely more, I would say on the mystical side, she gets, she gets a little funky. Um, one of, I think her most accessible books is a little book called the wisdom way of knowing. Um, I still think her, her book on centering prayer called centering prayer and inner awakening. That's the way I learned to do centering prayer. That's my favorite. Yes. Uh, she can come off as a little cerebral to some, but I personally love it. I think there's uh, such a depth to the way she uh, describes mystical territory. <laughs> um, so one of my favorites is the meaning of Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really about this sort of deeper mystical, uh, mystical meaning of, of of who Mary Magdalene was and, and what she was all about. And, um, and also the wisdom Jesus is a classic, I think that really helps us to get into the heart of what Jesus was really teaching and how he's, he was trying to help people awaken. Um, so those are some, I, I, there's so many I could recommend and I'm sure you do because you, I just want to say people, Mike is, uh, Mike is like, if you go to visit his house, <laughs> you'll like come away with like 16 books. <laughs> so, Yeah. Big old, big old nerd. And, and while we're on the Cynthia Borgia fan train, I would also add to your recommendations, Rebecca, like if you're someone who has tried centering prayer in the past, and you're just like, I don't know, being quiet, even for 20 minutes, it's, it's not my thing. Is there something more active? I would recommend her book, Chanting the Psalms. Um, which also there's a program she has on Sounds True that has a very similar title, but it goes into the energetics of, of chant and specifically this, you know, ancient monastic practice of chanting the Psalms, another lovely one. And, and her most recent major release, The Eye of the Heart, is a, is a beautifully personal story of, of a, a failed, quote unquote, love relationship that she recently had and how it showed her some of the sort of the mysteries of love and how love uh, unfolds itself in, in all of reality. Uh, so it, it's, it's also a, a really oh, wow. wonderful, um, yeah, look, it's, it's, you know, it's very, it's very Grzegifian. It goes into yeah. the sort of fourth way cosmology of, of the teacher I was mentioning earlier, um, Gurdjieff. But it's very practical about the ways in which, um, you know, in our own human lives, as well as arguably in the arc of evolution, we're going from this sort of stormy eros that that has polarity and preference and often destruction, and how that is metabolized into agape, to this more equanimous, you know, sort of love uh, in in our in our lives and in the world. So uh, definitely recommend Cynthia's stuff. It's good. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for being here. Is there, do you have any upcoming events or anything that people should know about? Mm. I know you've always got things going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, not on the immediate calendar in terms of 3D stuff, but I do recommend um, signing up for mikemorell.org newsletter because that's the first place you'll hear when, when something's cooking. 
Okay, great. Thank you. And I just want to remind listeners that uh, my name is Rebecca Burnt. You can go to my Substack at rebeccaburnt.substack.com or my website, rebeccaburnt.com, and just sign up for my newsletter where I have all kinds of writing. I do more of these podcasts, and I also have a new advice column that's about to launch. And you can find out about some of the services I offer as well at the rebeccaburnt.com. So thank you so much for listening, and thank you for chatting with me today, Mike. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Of course. Thanks for having me.